Ave Maria Radio and Renewal Ministries presents Fire on the Earth, a compelling look at the new evangelization through inspiring teachings, interviews, and testimonies. Hello, friends, and welcome to Fire on the Earth. I'm Pete Barak, filling in for Peter Herbeck this week. We've had a fun week of unpacking a really big and serious question. What must I do to be saved? And we've taken all sorts of different twists and turns as we've navigated Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, primarily looking at what does he actually say about this. And at the beginning of the week, we reminded each other that the church teaches that what we find in sacred scripture needs to be believed because it's firm, it's true, it's from the Holy Spirit, it's asserted by God, not just so that we can have a good time, not just so that we can feel good about what we've learned, so that we can understand and live in harmony with what God has revealed about what is necessary to be united with him for all eternity. The sake of our salvation is what we're talking about and why the scriptures are a roadmap, a great gift in our ability to understand the truth of who we are, what we're made for and where we're going, to live in harmony with that truth, and then ultimately get to the point where our lives and our actions and our beliefs not only revolutionize, transform us, our, our life with the Lord not only changes us, but then we're able to then bring about that process and walk with other people to see the same thing happen. Because like I said in a previous episode this week, that the broad and narrow way are dramatic, and it's horrifying to consider that many people are on the broad way. But one of the reasons Jesus tells us that is not just because it's true, because everything he says is true, but so that people who are on the narrow way will actually do something about it. And so that's what I want to focus on today is why does it matter? Why does it matter that we have an answer to this question of what must I do to be saved? And why does it matter that the church's answer is coming from Jesus? What happens in somebody when they believe this? And maybe... Also importantly, what happens when we don't believe this? Because the reality is the interpretation and the presentation of these hard sayings of Christ regarding salvation, this is not like a, a new thing. I mean, from the very beginning of the church, the, the popes and the bishops and theologians have been proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that we need to repent, that we need to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, and we need to receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, literally, the, the day the church is launched into the world in a public manner on Pentecost, Peter, the first pope, stands in, in a public forum with his brother apostles, declares something on faith and morals. So as good Catholics, we know that this is infallible. And he says, let the whole house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the king. He's the all-powerful one. He's the mighty one. And he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And then the crowd is cut to the heart because that's what happens when the gospel is preached with authority and conviction and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. When the word of God goes forth like that, embodied by believers filled with the power of the Spirit, the response is conviction or, like, we got to get rid of you. This is a good gut check for us that if to live the full Catholic Christian life and to proclaim the gospel is to bring about response from people. We are a church that should be concerned with decision points. We are a church that should be concerned with when we do something, people should respond to it. 
Because what we're doing is not just a temporal thing. It's not just a human thing. It's a supernatural thing. And we believe that there, are, there is power beyond us in these words that when I read the scripture and when I embody it and when I live in obedience to God and when I live in an intimate life with Jesus, I am supernaturally transformed. I am I'm different than those who don't have that power source. So we should be, expect that when the kingdom of light, the kingdom of our God encounters the kingdom of darkness, there should be a clash. There should be a response. And the response, hopefully, is repentance. That's what we're ultimately looking for. But sometimes it's not. And the rich history of the martyrs is not so much people repenting, but saying, this is too hard. We don't like this message. I think we got to get rid of you. So it's important that this ultimate question of salvation, one of the reasons it's important is because it, it brings people to a decision point, and this decision point has eternal consequences. And so I, I, I start here as to say, like, I'm not, I'm not revealing anything new here. This is what the church has been understanding from the beginning. And certainly our understanding of these doctrines has grown over time. And But the core conviction of the curse of sin, divine judgment, Jesus as the means of our salvation, has not wavered. But recently, in particular, there's been a move of certain theologians and kind of movement in the church to, to try to water down some of the intensities of these in, these teachings, where it's it's become more fashionable of late to kind of neuter Jesus of some of his more intense edges or what people perceive as a hard saying of Jesus to say, well, let's just kind of diminish that. Let's not talk about that so much. You know, Christ is in everyone or all people of goodwill are basically moving in the right direction. And as long as there's been, you know, as long as you're a decent person, as long as you're kind of responding to your conscience, as long as you're haven't killed anybody or anything like that, you're probably okay. And there's this kind of different forms of universalism that have found itching ears within the church and within the world because it, if I'm being honest, I get it. It's, it's easier to swallow. But Jesus didn't guarantee that the gospel would be easy to swallow. He didn't say that this would be an easy message for the world to understand. No, in fact, it's, it's folly. It's a stumbling block. It's a difficult word, but it's a difficult word, as we've talked about, originating from love. It's a difficult word pointing to mercy, and it's a difficult word, and I'm grateful it's difficult because it's it's sharp. It's an actual light in the darkness. It's salty. It hasn't gone flat. Universalism is going, it, it, that's flat. That's boring. That's not divinely inspired. It's wrong. It's not true. And so no wonder, I mean, there's a certain appeal to it, kind of like a marshmallow has appeal. Yeah, there's a certain, yeah, it tastes kind of fun or whatever, but marshmallows are, ugh. Compared to that to a steak dinner, but you got to work for that. You got to eat it. You got to uh, chew on it to really bring out the full flavor. Marshmallow, you just kind of pop it in there and it's done. And so <laughs> I wasn't planning to use that analogy, Steve, but there we are. The point is, here we are. The the reason this is important to answer this question is very simply that there is truth being spoken and this question has eternal consequences and there is power and truth and life and conviction and it's compelling with what the church offers in this watered-down, lukewarm, non-salty, universalist kind of mindset. There's no power in that. 
So one of the reasons why it's important to ask this question and talk about the answer is because there's there's a counter answer right now that is trying to to steal our joy, to steal our conviction. And when we start to live by that second answer in terms of more the universalist mindset of, well, everything's going to be okay and let's water down Jesus a little bit. One, it's extremely prideful to live that way because guess what? Everything I've been talking about today comes from Jesus. One of the reasons it's important to believe God's word regarding our eternal destinies is because it comes from God. Remember, I started the beginning of the week with Dave Verbum, but it's important to remember like this is being asserted by God. We believe in the broad and narrow way because Jesus described it. We believe in the separation of the goats and the sheep because Jesus wanted us to confront that reality. We know intimacy is possible with him because he says it is. We know obedience is possible because he says he is. We are all bound by sacred scripture because it's God's inerrant word. And that word has been passed down lovingly and protected by the church. And it's designed to purify us, to transform us, to sanctify us. So it sounds very simplistic to say, like, why is this question important? Well, because it's important to God and he's answered it for us. But the second reason it's really important is because there's no doubt in my mind that if if we water down this answer or if we lose conviction around the broad and the narrow way or if we kind of try to explain away hell, there's no question in my mind that our fervor and our willingness to sacrifice for the salvation of others would diminish. Whether or not we believe what Jesus says in Scripture about salvation absolutely impacts our zeal for souls. It absolutely correlates to whether or not we're willing to sacrifice, to lay down our lives, our reputations, our finances, our physical comfort for those to come to know him, to find the narrow way. I mean, why would I sacrifice my time, my talent, my treasure if it ultimately doesn't matter? Why would Paul have traveled all over the world Read Corinthians. He talks about all the things that happens to him. I was beaten and I was shipwrecked and I was, you know, kicked out of this synagogue. Why would he endure all that if ultimately at the end of the day, everyone is saved? Whether or not they believed in what he preached. I mean, why would Stephen stand in front of the Sanhedrin, proclaim the lordship of Jesus so much so that it enraged them and they stoned him to death? Why would he do that if he didn't completely believe? that even those men needed to repent and believe the truth. Stephen stands in front of the Sanhedrin and proclaims the lordship of Jesus with the hope that they would say yes to him. There's a really great moment in, in Acts, it's later in the book of Acts, where Paul is in front of Festus and Agrippa, and they're giving him an opportunity to defend himself, and he preaches the gospel to them. And they know he preaches the gospel to them because Agrippa at one point says, Paul, you're, you're crazy, you want us to believe? And Paul's like, yes, I want you to believe. This is for all mankind to believe this. It's, I found in my own life that when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't believe or is, you know, would self-identify as far from God, it's not that hard to talk about or maybe not that hard to highlight Jesus's mercy and some of the more quote unquote attractive promises of God, you know, related to our freedom, the fruits of the spirit, all that. Like, I don't find it that difficult to talk about Jesus loving them. But I have to remind myself that the good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if you also 
know the bad news. We need the full gospel for the good news to be a bright light in the darkness and salty to the point of actually being transformational. If we only restrict our message to the world, focusing on what we consider to be attractive to them, we will actually make it less attractive. Because it's attractive if you recognize the other side of it. To know and to believe and to recognize sin is also then to know and believe and recognize the Savior. To to know and believe and recognize that my actions have consequences and that I will be judged someday. And that judgment will either lead to my ultimate fulfillment, the fulfillment of all my desire, or the complete horror of separation and torment. To know and believe that is to then have conviction that I need to obey, that I need to have an intimate life with the Lord, that I need to find and stay on that narrow way. And so as we close out this week, let's just pray that the Lord would take all of this truth about what must I do to be saved? Lord, what must we do to be saved? And as we ask him that question over and over again, let the truth of who he is sink into our hearts, that we would be transformed by it, that we would believe it, that we would proclaim it, and that we'd be able to live as his disciples. Joyful, hopeful, peaceful, loving, but convicted and sober, knowing that we will all die, we will all stand before the Lord, we will either hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, or we won't. That's our goal, to have intimacy with him that leads to those incredible words. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Peter Herbeck. This has been Fire on the Earth. God bless. Each program of Fire on the Earth with Peter Herbeck can be downloaded at AveMariaRadio.net and RenewalMinistries.net. Fire on the Earth is a production of Ave Maria Radio. Friends, I'd like to offer you my new booklet, Receiving Fire. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire on the earth. Would that it were already ablaze. That fire is the purifying love that burns in the heart of Jesus. A fire of grace for those who receive it, but a fire of judgment for those who refuse it. If you'd like a copy of this free booklet, call 1-800-282-4789 or contact us on the web at renewalministries.net slash FOE. That's renewalministries.net slash FOE.